Welcome to the Commission Podcast. We're back for a new season with a summer of all new talks. We're going to be spending the next few weeks at Revive, Commission's annual Bible Festival, which took place in June this year. Coming up, we have talks from Richard Perkins, Steve Jeffrey, and the Christian Medical Fellowship. But today, we're hearing from one of our big top speakers, Kevin DeYoung. Kevin was speaking on redemption as he preached from Exodus 12, 1 to 14, and 1 Corinthians 5, 6 to 8. It's true for countries as it is for Christians that you can't understand your present without knowing something of your past. You have a very old country. When we have a a church in the United States that's, say, 100 years old, it's called historic. Here, that's sort of new church plant. You love your history, and and Americans love British history, too. I just finished, actually, uh, a degree. I was doing my PhD for the last five years through the University of Leicester. I reckon I've been to Leicester more times than most of you. Never even heard of the University of Leicester. Their motto, or at least used to be, elite without being elitist, which I take to mean we're not Cambridge, we're not Oxford, but we're not terrible, okay? Just... (laughs) Relax. Several years ago, the big news about Leicester was that they found the king in the car park, Richard III. They'd done all this work and said, don't get your hopes up, you know, these archaeological digs, you never find, they take forever. Well, by about 11 in the morning, yes, he was actually there and they found the king. When I started my program, and people especially in the state, Leicester, where's that? Leicester, how do you pronounce this? I said, well, they found a king. Oh, I heard something about that. But about partway through, that became completely forgotten when a miracle, they won the Premier League. <laughs> I've always been a big fan, a big fan. And now if I say lesser, oh yeah, isn't that that team that nobody ever wins? And they won, amazing. Their present has completely swallowed up their past. A king, who cares, Jamie Vardy. That's much more impressive. Well, sometimes we need to understand our past in order to understand our present. Did you notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Christ is called our Passover lamb. As Paul explains to the Corinthians their past, he is helping to explain their present. In Protestant churches, we have two sacraments, or maybe you call them ordinances, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And interestingly, Paul finds those two sacraments or ordinances both in the Exodus story. So here in chapter 5, he says, Christ, our Passover lamb. So that was prefiguring the Lord's Supper. You can flip over to chapter 10. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So that participation, that incorporation with Moses in the Exodus was a type of baptism by which later we would be incorporated into Christ, finding there in their past the Lord's Supper and baptism. Because, of course, the Exodus is the supreme event in the history of the nation of Israel of God's sovereign deliverance. 
The Passover meant at least three things for the Israelites, and the Exodus motif means at least three things for us as we think about redemption. So, three points. Number one, the Passover or the Exodus itself meant for Israel, and it means for us, a new beginning, a new beginning. Look, I hope you have it in your notes, in the program, or in your Bible to follow along. This is the first time in Exodus that God has talked to His people about set months and holy days. It makes sense because heretofore they had been a slave people. Time was not their own. But now God is marking out something new, a new time. So it says in verse 2, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. We are starting a new calendar. The first month called Abib, or later it would be called Nisan. The Passover would mark the end of life as they knew it in Egypt and the beginning of a new beginning as the nation of Israel. Look in verse 3. This is the first time in Exodus that that word, translated in English, congregation, is used. Probably here, meaning the representative leaders. It would be hard for likely two million people to be gathered around Moses here, but a representation, the congregation. They had been called Hebrews. They had been called sons of Israel. But now, uniquely, they are called a community, a congregation, not slaves. And one lamb, verse 4, is to be sacrificed for a household or if they don't have enough to share because there is a fundamental unity in this one body. They are starting out as a new nation with a new identity, a new name, and a new beginning. They get to start over. Now, supposedly, we live in a time of moral relativism. But actually, if you spend any time on the internet, you know we don't have very many moral relativists. We have quite a lot. Well, I would say that it's puritanical, but it gives the Puritans a bad name. What do you find on the internet? The internet is an absolutely merciless place. There's no gospel there. It's law, guilt, shame, Twitter mobs. You said the wrong thing on your social media. You posted the wrong thing when you were 16 years old. That will be forever recorded in digital history. And some employer sometime is going to Google search and they're going to find it all there and you can never escape your past. It's all there for posterity's sake. It's the way the world thinks. Always dredging up some ill-spoken word, something that you've done, something as a young person, or something just last week. Your mistakes will always be with you. That's what our world says. No do-overs. Now, to become a Christian does not mean you can erase your past. It's still there. You still face the consequences of it. But it does mean that you have an entirely new future. As Christians, we understand what the world does not understand, that you can start over. We are the people of God set free from sin, set free from Satan to be a holy congregation so that your past does not define you. 
You say, well, Kevin, you're a pastor and you probably don't have any sort of past. Well, we're all sinners, and not a single one of us would be happy if later this afternoon they said, we have a special session this afternoon, come back to the big top. Your life, all you've looked at, all you've done, all you've said, all you've thought will be here on the big screen. Who wants to come? We would be tearing down the tent. We would be boarding up the… It doesn't matter. No matter how many things we've done that may seem impressive, none of us would want that on the screen. All of us have a past. And God tells the Israelites, I am here to give you a new beginning. You're no longer defined by what you were, slaves in Egypt. A new beginning. Number two, a new freedom. A new freedom. So here they are, finally leaving Egypt. It says that they are to eat in haste. So they're, they're, the old language is they girded up their loins. That sounds sort of naughty. What does that mean? Well, it means probably that they, they would have a robe of some kind and they would, they would tuck it into their belt because you can't be running and marching out of Egypt with, with some sort of robe sashaying about. So you put it in your belt. You're ready to go. Move out in haste. Think about the faith that it took, not only to move out from Egypt, but to move out in haste. They had been slaves for 430 years, and now someone is telling you, quick! Really? Quick? It's been 430 years in the making. We, we need to be in a rush about this? <laughs> By faith, they understood, now is the time. We don't have time for the yeast to rise. We don't have time to get dressed. We just have to go. Now, this was all they had ever known. If you know anything about the history of Israel after the Exodus, the rest of the book, you know that they are often grumbling. It, it's just a matter of weeks, and all of a sudden they're pining, oh, we had cucumbers. Really? You're excited about vegetables? We had food, but you can understand. They had a rhythm. They had a routine. They knew what to expect. They were slaves in Egypt. It's not a good life. They, they hated the life, but the, it was their life. They knew what to do. They knew what today was. They knew what next month was. They knew what next year was. Somebody gave them food. Someone gave them purpose. Someone told them what to do. At least it was understandable. It was all they had ever known. And so they long to go back, and so do some of us. Too many of us would rather have the bondage we know than trust the God we cannot see. They wanted to go back, but God said, I've given you a new beginning and a new freedom. Now they will be a rebellious people, but at least at first, in verse 28, we read that they do all that had been commanded by Moses and Aaron, so they did. And think about this. Your first day, all you have ever known is bondage. All your fathers knew was bondage. All your grandma and grandpa knew was bondage. That first day to wake up, I can do what I want to do. I can decide for myself. I don't want to make bricks without straw. Their children could 
dream about what they wanted to be when they grew up. Their lives were free, but not freedom as our world would understand freedom. See, they were free only insofar as they were willing to trade servitude to Pharaoh for bondage to Yahweh. We learn the story of the Exodus, and we think of Moses sort of coming into Pharaoh's court, let my people go. Dun, dun, dun. It's very dramatic. Over and over, let my people go. But we forget the rest of what Moses says, because it was not just a bald assertion, let us go, let us go that we may go into the wilderness to serve the Lord our God. The goal of freedom was worship. We like to talk about freedom. It's a very Western ideal. We wax eloquent about it. And yet, if we're honest, we look all around us and people have a hard time really embracing freedom. We Instead, posit a a genetic determinism. You just are what your biology tells you you are. Your genes have already predetermined who you're going to be and what you're going to be like. Or if it's not a genetic determinism, it's a kind of environmental determinism. You can't escape the product of your parents, whether you went to the good schools or the okay schools, whatever sort of class you're in what sort of job you have, what sort of part of the country you come from. That's all you'll ever be. You're just, you're just the product of your experiences. You can't escape it. And so many of us are, are bound to one or the other sorts of determinism, and the Bible gives us a different kind of freedom. And let's be honest, even the people who will talk at length about sexual freedom or lifestyle freedom, they don't understand what freedom is in the Bible. Real freedom is not the ability to be whatever you want to be. Real freedom is the ability to be who you ought to be. Remember, the freedom from Egypt was most importantly the freedom to worship Yahweh, to follow His law. That was initially Moses' request, let us go three days into the wilderness. Let us go and serve the living God. It was never a freedom to be absolutely free from all constraints. It was redemption that we might worship. People sometimes talk about law leading to gospel, meaning the law tells us we're sinners and we need a Savior and it leads us to Christ because we can't earn it on our own and we need Jesus to save us. And all of that is wonderfully true. But there's also a sense in the unfolding of biblical revelation that gospel leads to law. Think about in Exodus. It is after the sovereign unilateral salvation procured by God that they go into the wilderness and meet there on Mount Sinai and receive the giving of the Ten Commandments. The gospel led to law. Because when when the people said, set us free, we're slaves in Egypt, God didn't come and say, okay, you're slaves, I'm going to give you ten commandments, I'm going to check back in a year how you're doing with the commandments. 
If you're, if you're you know, getting about 80% of them, then I got some plagues, okay? But let me just see how you're doing. No, that, that's not how salvation works. That's not how redemption works. I hope you don't think that, that God is just waiting for you. All right, we're going to check back in a few months, see how you're doing. And if you're doing all right, then I'll be your God. No, He said, I am your God. I'll save you by my own gracious mercy. And because I have saved you, because I have set you free, here's how you remain free. People think that law is somehow to imprison us. Law is to keep us free. If you're driving on some hairpin turn, some mountain pass, with, uh, or if you're, you're walking the, the, the cliffs of Dover, if you're somewhere and there's a great precipice on either side of you and you're driving along and you see a guardrail, you say, I hate these guardrails. Why are you trying to tell me what to do? Now you say, that's a good idea. I could hurt myself. I'm grateful that somebody had the mind. Why do you have everywhere you go, mind the gap? Be careful. People are trying to help you. So the law is given to God's people not to enslave them again, but to keep them free. To do whatever you want to do is the worst kind of bondage. To do as God would have us do is real freedom. Notice something in verse 12. You see something of the purpose of this freedom. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And whenever you see Lord there in those lower, uh, small capital letters, it's the divine name, Yahweh or older translations, Jehovah, the I am that I am, you will know Yahweh is God. The defeat of Egypt's gods in the ten plagues was to tell Israel and the whole world that the Lord was God and the Lord alone. Why ten plagues? Why not just one? God could have just done this one time. You just want to make a really long movie out of it? No, because each of those plagues, if you've studied Exodus before, you know, does something to strike at the pantheon of Egyptian gods and goddesses, at the goddess of the Nile or of the frogs or of the livestock. And over and over again, it's God's way of saying, they're not God, they're not God, they're not God. Because all the Egyptian gods were about crops and fertility and health and safe passage in death, and yet the ultimate of the plagues, this killing of the firstborn, is to show, no, 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 your gods, O Egypt, do not set you free from death. If you want real freedom, lasting freedom, lifelong freedom, you need a way to solve the problem of death. Hebrews 2, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. People are in bondage to the fear of death. 
and we exercise and we try to get rid of sugar and eat healthy and we take pills and we do whatever we can because we think I need, I need to keep living. And you know what? The surveys are in. One out of one persons will die. All of us, 100%. I know that's true because I read it on the internet. <laughs> you will die. What will you do about death? The Egyptians had a pantheon of deities to help them manage death, and God, the Lord God, conquered them all. And here we see in the Passover, there's only one God who can give you the freedom to set you free from the fear of death. Because as a Christian, the worst thing that can happen is also the best thing that can happen. Death is a great enemy. We mourn over death. But it is for the Christian also that passage to what we have been waiting for, that it is better to be with Christ than to live. A new beginning, a new freedom, and third, a new forgiveness. The holy day is called Pasach in the Hebrew, which can be translated a number of ways, but traditionally, verse 13 has been rendered Passover. They are to select a lamb on the tenth day of the first month, verse 3. They kill their lambs at twilight on the fourteenth day of the month, verse 6. And as they put it on the doorpost and on the mantle, so the angel of death will pass over. If the Israelites are going to live, a lamb must die. Now think about what this means for the Israelites. They've been the oppressed. The Egyptians have been the oppressors. They might have been excused for thinking that Egypt and the Egyptians were the bad guys and they were the good guys. But here we see Israel, you're sinners too. It's not just a world that just has bad guys and good guys and oppressors and oppressed and tyrants and people who are put upon by tyrants. No, no. Israel, if you're going to live, you need blood. They might have thought, well, well what about us? We're, we're children of the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we have been slaves and we have been mistreated. Yes, all the same. You too deserve to die unless you have the blood of the Lamb. They needed to be saved from the destroyer. Verse 23, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. This is the story of the plague that wasn't, that wasn't for the Israelites. But already, and we will see it in the next session as we go to Leviticus 16 and the scapegoat, but here it is, the lamb, already at the very beginning of their history as a nation, they are having impressed upon him this singular truth, a lamb must die if you will live. A lamb must die if you will live. The blood would be a sign and a seal to them. 
a public sign, an assurance, a visceral reminder that their life could only be preserved through death. That this lamb would both take away guilt, that's expiation, to expunge, to remove the guilt, and also would turn away wrath, that is propitiation, what we will hear about later this morning. And we see here, hopefully, it's not hard to connect the dots with the Passover and the cross and the empty tomb, just as Paul does in 1 Corinthians 5, that Christ is our Passover lamb, because we find in the cross and in the empty tomb all of these same realities, don't we? That we have at the cross a new beginning. A new beginning for Jesus, who will be the first fruits of resurrection, a new beginning for the disciples, a new beginning for the world, and a new beginning for you. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. You have a new beginning. You have a new freedom. Romans 6 tells us we are no longer slaves to wickedness and sin and bondage, but we are now slaves to ever-increasing righteousness. The central command in the New Testament regarding your holiness is very simple. Be who you are. Now, our world gets that half right. Our world says you can only be who you are. You only can operate out of your identity. What is your identity? Are you, are you male? Are you female? Are you black? Are you white? Are you African? Are you European? Are you, what are you? You're, that's your identity. But we understand as Christians that we have all sorts of identities, but the identity that matters most and that is most fundamental is whether or not we are in Christ. So Paul can say over and over again, be who you are. Remember hearing a story one time of a, a man who was struggling with same-sex attraction and coming out of a, a gay lifestyle. And one moment, he was, he was feeling himself drawn to go back to that. And you can fill in the blank, whatever your proclivity to sin might be. And he called up his pastor, wise thing to do if you're thinking of sin. And he said, I'm, I'm, I'm going back. I'm going back to the bars. I'm going back to do that. And the pastor gave such wise, calm advice. He said, brother, no, that's not who you are. One of the great theologians of our day, Lady Gaga, <laughs> has an old song, it's several years old by now, called Born This Way. It's all about you're born this way, and you can only be what you were born this way, and you, you can go look it up later. You can, you can very well imagine the sort of argument that she's making. That's what our world says. You're born this way. Well, you know what? She's more right than she knows. We are born this way. But the good news of the gospel, which our world has missed, is that you can be born again a different way, and you have a new beginning, a new freedom a new forgiveness. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so it's fitting that the Passover, though we remember it as historical remembrance and we see its 
uh, prefiguring greater things to come, yet in the Christian church it has been swallowed up by Good Friday and by Easter because our Passover lamb was there hanging on the cross. As we move from Exodus to Leviticus, we move into what seem to us to be very tedious chapters about sacrifice after sacrifice, and it's, it's gory and it's bloody, and the priests seem to be little more than butchers. Leviticus 1 verse 4 says, He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. I said at the, the extra session yesterday, that word was invented by William Tyndale, at, to, at one meant. That's what atonement means, how estranged parties are reconciled, how we are brought together to be one. In the act of laying a hand upon the animal, as we will hear with the goats, is to say the guilt is upon the head of the substitute. And Leviticus tells us that animal, the lamb in chapter 1, is a pleasing aroma. Because over and over throughout Israel's history, day after day, they were meant to be reminded that they were sinners in need of a Savior. There were five different kinds of offerings. And you brought it, the animal for all sorts of reasons. You had to sacrifice offerings when you had an emission. You had to sacrifice offerings when you had a child. You had to sacrifice offerings on the Sabbath and new moon festivals. And when you were cleansed of a disease. And if ever there was a moment when the altar was empty, it said that the priest was to keep the coals burning constantly. Never let the flame go out. For year after year, century after century, God's people would have seen the fire coming up from the altar. And there, gathered around the tabernacle in the wilderness, would have smelled the pungent aroma of mangled flesh, would have seen another one of their bleeding sheep be brought to the slaughter. They would have felt in the air that sharp aroma of blood year after year, century after century, and then finally some wild-eyed prophet eating bugs points to this man and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That man, he will put an end to all of this, the fulfillment of all that has been prefigured, that in Him we can have a new beginning and a new freedom and a new forgiveness. He will be our mediator, our reconciliation. Because the justice of God did not pass over Him, the justice of God can pass over us and you can be set free. Redemption is about purchase. It means you have no debt to be paid. Now, you may owe money to the government. You may owe money for your home. You may owe your money, money to your parents. Believe me, you do. 
but we are not debtors in the sense that God is looking down and, mm, 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 oh, there you go again. You're going to really need a good week of obedience there if you want to retain your status as my son or daughter. Now, here's the great paradox of Christianity. You do not have a debt to be paid, but you belong to another. You've been purchased, which means I don't owe, but I am not my own. Can you hold both of those things? Our world can't. Our world either says you got to just earn it, you got to just work for it, you got to just pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, prove to God that you're worthy, or more likely the world says, well, yes, oh, we love grace, we love cheap grace, and of course God is just this, uh, you know, a benevolent Santa Claus looking down and giving out gifts, and one of the most countercultural verses in all the Bible is where Paul says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. It's not your body. It's not your body. It's not my body. So you do not owe, but you are not your own. You have been redeemed. You have been set free, not for bondage, but for servitude to God, which is the only kind of freedom worth living for. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks for all that You have revealed to us in Your Word and for the sacrifice of Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for the blood of the Lamb on the doorpost that the destroyer might pass over us, and we can start over and be free and be forgiven. Help us to live in that freedom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll have more from Revive 2019 in our next episode, but why not check out the archive for talks from previous Commission events? They're over at commission.org slash podcast.